give our students a hand. We have some amazing students here at Champion Forest Baptist Church. This section and all the way back. And here's the cool thing. They're awake. Do, do any of you remember lock-ins and retreats? You know, where you had to come back and sleep for three days because you didn't sleep for three days? Well, not only do I think they slept, but I think they are wide awake and ready to go. And I'm so excited about what God has done for you. The theme is awesome, pursuit, pursuit. Um, by the way, you'll hear more about Freedom Weekend a little bit later in the service. I want to share some stories, show you a video, just kind of give you an overview of what God's doing in our student ministry. The theme, pursuit, of course, identifies the most important pursuit that any person can ever engage in. And, and what or who is that pursuit of? Wow. Did y'all go to the conference or just get the t-shirt? I suspect, if because they're scared to death, because I'm putting them on the spot, that to pursue Jesus is the highest call. It's our number one pursuit in life. I mean, until we get that, then everything else gets away from us. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, in other words, him, and then all these things, what things? everything and anything else except the main thing, these things will be added unto you. It's such a great, powerful picture that if we pursue Jesus, he'll call us the things we need to pursue us. And that's really important. But while we're talking about pursuit, when we get the Jesus thing in order, I mean, we get Jesus first, and when he is our heart's desire, and we're pursuing him first and foremost, then everything else begins to come into alignment. Like pursuing, for example, uh, A's on our report cards. Anybody get any A's? No? All right. B's are good. B's are good. Uh, like pursuing a college of your choice, a university to attend. And those colors aren't meant to brainwash you, I'm sure, given that they are super insensitive to anybody who would rather they be burnt orange. Burnt orange. Uh, how about a career, a, you know, a career in life, not only in education, but a career? And let me ask you something. Uh, how many of you might have some interest in ever, if ever, pursuing a spouse? Anybody? Can I see a show of hands? Hey, guys, boys, look at me. Look around. Jackpot, man. You have hit the jackpot. You are surrounded by women who just raised their hand and said, I'm looking for a dude. Yep. And I want to just tell you that all of those life-changing, life-directing pursuits are really important and powerful to keep Christ first. But I want to suggest something to you today that, that if in your future ever, if ever in your future you think, hope, or expect that there might be another person that you stand up in front of an altar of a church and a pastor like this and say, I do, listen carefully. Because in today's text, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, we're going to be talking about the marriage union, the marriage relationship. And while you're turning to Ephesians 5, I want our students to lean in and listen carefully because this is the time to plan and prepare for marriage. Not the week after the marriage wedding. Now is the time. to Get your mind right. Get your vision clear and correct and pointed in the right direction as you pursue Christ and all that Christ has for you. And while you're turning to Ephesians 5, I just feel like I need to start with some good news. Because generally when you hear sermons on family, home, marriage, it's a lot of bad news and a lot of you-betters. But i got some good news for you today. Now let me try it in this way. First of all, you'll be glad to know, maybe, that America is not the divorce capital of the world. It's not. Russia wins that one. 
give them a gold medal. We're glad they got that one. We don't want it. And number two, good news, the divorce rate in America is not rising. In fact, good news, it's declining and fairly significantly. It's at its lowest rate now since 1971. And in fact, you want some really good news? University of Maryland professor Philip Cohen found that from 2008 to 2016, that eight-year window, the U.S. divorce rate dropped by 18%, driven by a very sharp decline in divorces among, get ready for this, millennials. Millennials, you say, well, they hadn't been married long enough to divorce. No, the, the same slice for this generation as the same slice for the previous generations, the divorce rate plummeted. So while millennials get blamed for everything, you cannot blame them for divorce rates. They are getting it done. And they are waiting longer and more committed when they do. And the divorce rate among millennials is significantly, sharply less than in any of our previous generations, at least in real time. Way to go, millennials. Good job. We have some, absolutely. So that's the good news. And by the way, uh, here's the third piece of good advice. 50% of marriages, you you know what comes next, right? People say, oh, 50% of marriages. No, 50% of marriages do not end in divorce. I know why you're laughing, because you think that's just the whole glass is half full or half empty, right? It's not. Actually, even if that statistic were true that 50% of marriages do end in divorce, 50% don't. But that's not even the right use of that statistic. That statistic is misquoted, misused, it's not even close to accurate. In fact, of first-time marriages, if you're asking the question, how many first-time marriages will end in divorce? Well, you don't really know that. It's a moving target. But if you do it as best you can, that actual number gets down to about less than 40% of first-time marriages. And in fact, I've got a little more good news to you. If you take that number and add a few key variables like age of marriage and education level and income, then the potential for divorce plummets down around 18% if you just get a few good factors in place. For example, uh, students, you're too young. You're too young. People that get married very early have a higher rate of divorce. Uh, Secondly, get an education. Statistically, the higher the education, the lower the divorce rate. And thirdly, have an income. (laughs) Can I get an amen from the mamas and daddies in the house? Get a job. Get an income. Have an income. In fact, if your income is 50,000 and above, then your rate of divorce goes significantly down. Now, that's not true all the way to millions, right? But it is true that at about 50,000 and above, the divorce rate plummets. So those three things, wait a little longer, get a better education, get a really good job. Oh, and there's one more variable I'd want to introduce. Go to church. Yeah, I know, but they're here. So they're like, oh, great. He just told us to do what we're already doing. We're done. We can check out right now. But this is some fourth good news. It's said, and You've probably heard it's often repeated untrue thing to say that the divorce rate within the church is the same as the divorce rate as those outside of church. I'm here to tell you that is flatly not true. Unpatently not, that is just not correct. And study after study confirms that. In fact, uh, Bradford Wilcox, leading sociologist at the University of Virginia, director of the National Marriage Project, found, get ready for this, Not just church affiliation or membership, 
But active participation or regular church attendance among conservative Protestants means that you are 35% less likely to divorce, according to the statistics, compared to those who have no church or religious affiliation. In other words, it helps. It makes a difference. It really does. It matters that you're here today if you're married. It matters that you're here today if you're not yet married, but hope someday to be married. It matters if you stay in church. It makes a difference for a holy, healthy, and happy marriage if you're connected to and attend regularly and share the same religious convictions and belief and practice those beliefs. By good gracious, the good news is the rate of divorce among those kinds of marriages, those kinds of families is really, really low and for good reason. Why not? God designed it. Marriage was God's idea. Go to Genesis. Start there in the beginning. God put this man and this woman together and he he made the two to become one flesh. And if we'll just do life God's way, if we'll just be married the way God made us to be married, if we'll just love each other like God's commanded us and given us an example to love each other, well, we really will come together and stay together with a much greater frequency. Certainly didn't, and we don't. In fact, Beverly and I, uh, by the way, uh, she's here, you know, because she wouldn't miss today for nothing. For nothing. Because Beverly and I have been married 30 years. And we have a great, awesome, amazing, and wonderful marriage, don't we, honey? We practice that. We, we practice that. We do, but I want to tell you this we're still growing and we're still learning. And so today we'll be growing and learning together, together. And the reason we're still growing and learning is because we discovered something fairly early on in our marriage. You see, when we went to the church on that Saturday night on August the 13th of 1988, did I get it right? Yep. When we went and we stood before the preacher, a different people, a man and a woman, different persons, we stood up there and he preached the longest sermon ever in the history of the whole world, ever. And finally he got around to the important stuff and he said some words and he asked us to say, I do. And when we did, we thought we were done. Except for the walking off to the side of the stage. And back in the day we did unity candles. Remember those? I mean, they do all kinds of things now. They do ropes, they do sand. They got all kinds of ways to sort of demonstrate that the two have become one. But Beverly and I, we shook it up, man. I tell you, we came together. We said, I do. We thought we were done. What we discovered was we'd only just begun. As we're like oil and water. Uh, we're like oil and water. We, we're just not naturally compatible. We're just not naturally pulled together to each other. See, it's our fallen sin nature that creates this hindrance or a barrier to us truly experiencing unity and intimacy in relationships and certainly in the marriage relationship. I mean, after the wedding, yeah, the reception for sure. We are one in Jesus, amen. I mean, after the, we go on the honeymoon, we have a great time. We come back, move into our marriage home. We're getting like little country blue ducks and toasters and everything matches, the towels. I mean, it's perfect. We got four blenders to pick from. You know, we got three irons. We got 17 of everything you need. We, we, this is perfect. We are together now. But I want you to watch this uh, concoction I've got here because uh, oil and water just doesn't mix well. It just doesn't. And if any of you have been married for any length of time, you know why. Because we're different. I mean, we're really different. Can I just tell you something that maybe you, you have never heard before? It's profound 
It's so incredible. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but men and women are different. (laughs) Now, I know that's shocking. Please don't send me emails and don't text or tweet. You know, just let me live in my own little world to still believe that men and women are fundamentally, as a product of God's creative genius, different. And because of our sin, the difference is defining. But God has a plan for marriage. And God has a plan for men and women who are inherently different to come together and to experience something that transcends their natural capacities or abilities. To achieve intimacy in relationship that you could not possibly achieve apart from the presence of the very Spirit of God. See, we were made to complement one another. We see an expression of that complementarianism in the Scriptures in Ephesians chapter 5. By now, hopefully, you've found that passage of Scripture. And I'd like to read it to you and deal with what is typically perceived as a very difficult passage, especially in our day and time. In a modern world, they say this is old-fashioned. Somebody might say, Pastor, if you do this, you're going back to the 50s. Let me just suggest to you that today I'm going back a whole lot further than the 50s. I'm going back to the beginning to God's grand and divine design for home and for family and for marriage. Next week, we'll talk about parents and children and relationships out in the workplace and the job. But today, we start here, where God started the coming together of two human beings in marriage. Verse 22 of chapter 5 says this, Wives, can I get an amen? Wives, can I get a better amen? Very good. We'll see if you give me another one in a minute. You're a little resistant because you've read this before, right? You've heard some old Baptist preacher like me get up here and preach this before, and you're not too sure you will say amen to anything at this point. I understand. The Bible says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I won't ask you for another amen. (laughs) Let's just unpack it. Because there's some real power in this. In context, of course, verse 22 needs a verb. If you were to read this in the original language of the Bible and you started in verse 15, you'd be missing the verb because the verb is borrowed, as it were, from verse 21, which serves as a hinge to connect what's before with what comes after. And in Ephesians 5, 15 and following last week, we discovered that we are to live spirit-filled lives, not to be controlled by any outside substances. Don't be drunk with wine. That's wasteful. That's reckless. But give yourself over to the influence and to the control of the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible talks about how that spirit-filled life works itself out in joy, in harmony, in unity, in peace, in celebration, in thanksgiving. And then swings right into the family table. Verse 21 says, submitting one to another as unto the Lord. 
And then verse 22 says, wives unto your husbands as unto the Lord. So these two are connected by necessity, which means we've got to set this verse, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord, in the context of both of us, husband and wife, living in full submission and surrender to the Lord. To the Lord. This is a really important concept. This is not about mutually submitting to each other as if we have some 50-50 partnership. That is not what it's saying. It doesn't mean that we each mutually submit to each other. My goodness, that's a formula for disaster. We'd never get anything done. That'd be like dinner on Friday night. Where you want to go, honey? Oh, I don't care. Just whatever you want. Cool, we'll have Chinese. No, I was really thinking not Chinese tonight. Oh, okay. No Chinese. How about we go get some of that fried seafood? You know, we like that fried seafood. Oh, you know, I just, I'm not feeling fried tonight. Does anyone eat fried food tonight? I say, honey, you said whatever. I've made two suggestions. You don't want either. What would you like? Oh, you know, I'm just easy. I'm easy. Just whatever you want. Just whatever you want except what I just said we should have. So that, that whole mutual submission thing can get very cloudy, very complicated, and very confusing. And it may result in never making a decision or ever getting anything done and never making any progress. Somebody in any situation has to step forward and lead. Now, you can deputize another to lead in an area where they're more specialized or have more experience or more ability in a certain area. There are areas in our family and home where Beverly clearly leads according to her giftedness, and how God has created her. I'm just telling you, there are times and places when Beverly's just better than me. I meant to say lots, many, lots of times and places. I can tell you this, she is certainly far superior to me at being a woman. But if I brought her up here and handed her a microphone, she would say, I hope, but I'm a little bit better than she is at being a man. And you see, this scripture isn't talking about value or worth or dignity. That's settled. Can we just clear that? It's settled. When God made both the man and the woman in his image, in his image created he them. Male and female, he created them. And when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go for the men and hope the women would come along later. He died for all of us because all of us are precious, prized, special, and of infinite worth and value, worth his blood on the cross of Calvary, all of us, equally. And the ground at the cross, as Billy Graham used to say, is level ground. Male nor female, we are the same in our value. But this scripture isn't speaking of value or dignity that's settled. This speaks of the role we play in the relationships that God has given us and ordained from the very beginning of time. This word submit, it means to be arranged under or in the order of. It's not about value. It's about the roles that we play in relationship. God is not the author of chaos. God is a God of order, and he has ordered our lives to work in a certain way according to how he's created us, to the special strengths and gifts that he's given us, and how those strengths and weaknesses complement this other person that God is weaving us together to become one as a married couple. That word, by the way, submit, I want to be clear to say, does not say women submit to men. Now, ladies, you can say amen to that. It's not about men and women. Does it say, women, you will be submissive to all men? does not say that. It's very specific to the marriage relationship between a wife and a husband. Neither does it say, 
wives submit to sin. Doesn't say that. Because again, we're in the context of both of us submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which means this really isn't that complicated if we both come into alignment to the lordship of Christ then we experience unity and harmony and a commonality of purpose. Which means we're working together on the same page, going in the same direction. When we're both submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we just naturally fall into our particular role. So this isn't about women in situations where there is any sort of abuse. I want to be clear on this. I feel like today we just have to say this. Nowhere in this passage does it say that a woman should submit to an abusive man put herself in a dangerous situation, and no pastor, preacher, teacher, or person should ever say to a woman, well, whatever he does, you have to submit to it. Because you are surrendering or submitting the role of leadership in a relationship to one who is surrendering the role of leadership to the Lord. Hello? To the Lord. Now, don't let me give you an excuse for bailing, because Peter does say, wives, submit to your husbands, and even to the husbands who aren't leading spiritually, Let your testimony of sweetness and kindness and surrender to them be a testimony to them of the love of God for them in Christ Jesus. That's what Peter says. But we would not press that or push that to the degree of any sorts of unsafe situation or insecure position or any sorts of sinful behavior or activities. Because all of this is under the umbrella of the infilling of the Holy Spirit and of our mutual submission, if not to each other, each of us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the roles that we play, submit, means to be under or to be arranged in the order of. And it simply means this, that we are to choose to let the Lord lead us as Christians and followers of Christ, as the wife chooses voluntarily. This word is completely voluntary. Now the order, the commandment, is that we submit ourselves. So ladies, let me just say that submit ourselves, sort of a reflexive, kind of a middle passive voice says, this is something I choose. I'm pressing this because I want all the husbands to hear me. It's not your job to bring your wife into submission. Never fails. Maybe once a year. A guy will say, my wife just won't submit to me. I usually take my glasses off. No, I don't because I can't see. (laughs) But I try to kindly say something like this. That, my friend is none of your business. You are not commanded as the husband to cause or even to encourage your wife to submit to you. That's arrogance. You see, her submission to you is between her and the Lord. Submitting to your husband as unto the Lord. She's being obedient to the Lord and she's honoring the Lord and she's submitting to the Lord when she lets you lead in the relationship. But her submission is not your business. It's her business. Wife, submit yourself as unto the Lord with this voluntary aspect and let him lead as he follows Christ and in everything. Now the scripture does say in everything because sometimes we try to put this just in the spiritual conversation. That the husband should be the spiritual leader of the home. Well, he should be spiritual and he should be a leader. But he should be a spiritual leader in all things. That's what the scripture says. He should lead in all things. He should give that example of leadership. And she should give the example of submission and surrender. Because this is a picture, don't you see, of the church. That Jesus is the head of the church. And is the leader and the Lord of the church. And he leads and we willfully and joyfully and voluntarily submit to his lordship. Certainly it's in our best interest to do so because he's the Lord and he loves us so much. 
that we're willing to lay down everything to take up the cross and to, to follow him. So wives, the Bible says, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now before the men start to shout and all the women walk out, let me get to the second part of this same point because it really is one point. With regard to understanding our biblical roles in marriage, the wife is to submit to her husband, her own husband, as unto the Lord. And husbands are to love their wives, verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is not a second point. This is not a different point. This is the same conversation, the second side of the same coin, if you will. It takes both. So you really shouldn't consider one of these at the expense of the other or one without the other. These must go together. So wives, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. While it may feel like, seem like, may be a tall order in our world to say to wives, submit to your husbands, let me just tell you something. Try loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And by the way, there's only three verses to the wives. There's about eight or nine to the men. Not that we ever read instructions. <laughs> but we got some instructions here to the tune of three times the amount because God knew we men would need a little extra tutoring here. You see, for a wife to submit to a husband, we have to sort of ask ourselves to the degree she can submit and to the kind of man she might submit the leadership to. To this man... Husbands who loved their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now there's a whole picture of the cross of his death, burial, and resurrection. There's a picture there of redemption and reconciliation. There's a picture there of exaltation, of of lifting up, of holding out and saying, look what my grace has accomplished. Look what my love has perfected. Jesus loves the church to that degree. And the Bible says, men, we're supposed to love our wives in the same way as Jesus loved the church. If we keep reading in the same way, husbands, verse 28, should love their wives as their own bodies. Now that we get. Because unless there's some mental break in us, men, we tend to like ourselves a little bit. We do. We love our bodies. Have you been to a gym lately? I mean, like a workout place? You wonder why all those mirrors are around all those walls? Really? It's not for the ladies. Go to a gym and just look around, if you dare. And watch men work out. I'm resting between sets. Those mirrors are there for us. And those of us who don't go to gyms like that and look in the mirrors like that, we got mirrors at home, don't we? See, Paul's saying, look, you know, guys, we tend to, to love ourselves. We tend to take care of ourselves we tend to nourish and cherish ourselves. I mean, if we're thirsty, we get something to drink. If we're hungry, we get something to eat. If we want something, we find a way to get it. I mean, how many husbands have convinced their wives that they need something? 
that they just won't. Because we just have a tendency to do, because it's our body, it's who we are, it's ourselves. And Paul says, here's what you do, guys. Whatever your wife needs, you meet that need. Whatever her heart desires, you find a way to meet that desire. Wherever she needs nourishing, nourish her. Wherever she needs cherishing, cherish her. Hold her up and love her like you would your own self. Like Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. I mean, this is a tall order, guys. You know it is. And any time, listen, any time we would say to our wives, you just need to submit to me. First of all, that's not our business. That's between her and the Lord. But secondly, we would give her then the right, at least the input, to want to say, well, when are you going to start loving me like Jesus loves you? Like you love you. And you know what happens? We get into this crazy cycle to where what I need really as a man is is a woman to honor and respect me because God created me with that deep need and desire to be respected, to be honored. And I've got a wife whose deep need and desire of her heart is to be loved and to be accepted for who she is and to be cherished and to be honored. If we aren't careful, I'll stand over here. Uh, by the way, the, 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 we're into the marriage and the, the honeymoon is past and we passed the seven-year itch and we have tried. I mean, we've been to Sunday school, we've been to church, we've been to marriage retreats and conferences and we get a little closer along the way, but you know, there's not much time at all that we don't get shaken up, come together, and then settle right back into our old patterns and our old habits. I mean, if you could see this, can I hold this up? I just literally just shook these two together. And already, can you see what's happening? Can you see the line right here? You see it lightening up here as quick, as fast as that. I mean, sometimes you go to a marriage conference that ends at noon, and by 3 o'clock, <laughs> by 3 o'clock, you're already arguing, choosing sides and going to different ends of the house over something that was said or not said or done or not done in the marriage conference you just left. Because fundamentally, because of our fallen sin nature, we just drive each other crazy. And so we separate. But what God has given us here in this scripture is a picture of what He created us to be and to become in Christ Jesus. Listen to what He said, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother... And hold fast, to hold fast, cleave. Remember the, the, the old wedding? To leave and to cleave. To cleave means to get a grip on, to hold fast, to hang on to, to stick. To leave and to cleave. They will hold and cleave fast, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, I'll say so. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church, that union and unity that is spiritually orchestrated and achieved. It refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you, men, love his wife as himself, and ladies, let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what we see here is this sort of a circle upward or downward, of a man who is created to need honor and respect and a woman who's created to need love and acceptance. And we shake it up, and it just keeps going back to the same place. Can I just tell you, I share with you the statistics. If you need some empirical data, if you need some science to back up what I'm saying, 
There's tons of it. That not only does regular participation, regular attendance, shared faith, shared values, shared practices with regard to your faith make a difference. The presence of the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus in the middle of your marriage, God as your priority and your number one goal makes all the difference in the world and makes two otherwise opposing forces complementary and gives us a spirit of cooperation. You see, what's missing in this mix is an emulsifier. Because oil and water just doesn't mix. You shake it up, but it's not going to mix. It's going to be a temporary coming together and then a separation. But this jar is different. In this jar, I went ahead and put something in this jar. You can see it's separated. Oil, water. The water's colored, so you can see it clearly. Oil and water. But I've put in this an emulsifier. An emulsifier is a substance that creates bonding or binds at the molecular level. So it breaks down oil and water. Now, some of you are science majors. I know I'm like kindergarten here, but bear with me. Oil and water doesn't mix at the molecular level. That's why it separates after just a few moments. But when you put in an emulsifier, or in this case an egg yolk, and you shake it up, now that egg yolk binds together the molecules of the oil and water and creates a more homogeneous mixture. Now, it's not perfect, although if I had a food processor in a few minutes, we could whip this up in some really good blue mayonnaise, which is typically lemon juice and um, oil and uh, whip, 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 a little salt, a little pepper, a little something else, and next thing you've got this white homogenous substance called mayonnaise. It's just simply that an emulsifier has made it possible for the molecules of what would otherwise be divisive and separative come together in some union and to achieve unity. So that when we say, I do, no, we weren't done. It certainly took some shaking and some work. Because marriage is hard and takes hard work. I'm telling you, it's worth it. But it doesn't make it easy. But my goodness, when you add the spirit of the living God, when you make it all about Jesus, and when both the husband and the wife are in surrender and submission to the infilling of the wholeness of the Spirit of God and following after Christ's principles for living life and serving and obeying the Lord, that's just some kind of an emulsifier spiritually that helps two people who would otherwise repulse each other and sometimes still do come together in a way that transcends their natural ability or capacity. I'm telling you, that triangle really is true. That you take a husband and a wife and you put them on opposite ends of the spectrum. And you say, hey, y'all get together and create a perfect union. Get together and be one. Two shall become one. You remember you, you said I do and so you did. And remember you tied the knot. Remember you put the sand together. Remember you did the whole. Remember that the candle thing? You light the one in the middle, you blow out the two. I did a wedding one time and they forgot to blow out the outer two. And the bride was in a panic. She was concerned. Her wedding was cursed. Because she forgot to blow out the other two. So they were three. And I spiritualized and said, don't worry. Marriage has always been about three. You and him and the Holy Spirit. You look at that triangle. You've got a man and a woman who otherwise just wouldn't be able to come together and be together and be one together. But if you will add another dimension to that, to that continuum and make it a triangle, put Jesus at the top. And if both of you, in spite of your differences, will begin to grow in Christ's likeness and make Him your passion and make Jesus your pursuit, what you'll discover is that you will grow closer together as you each grow closer to Christ. And that makes all the difference. That's the emulsifier that makes it possible 
for two people who are very different to live in one union, in harmony, and to share a spiritual unity. Hey, listen, this is God's design for us. This is God's purpose for us. And you can see how quickly these two separate, and yet we have some homogeneity here, some consistency here. doesn't mean that we don't need to give some time and attention to this, that we don't still need to be in church, that we don't still need to be in the Word, that we don't still need to be in prayer, that we don't still need to hit some marriage conferences along the way, read a good marriage. We've got to work on it. But I can tell you this, the difference is unmistakable, as is the difference Jesus makes in your marriage. So as I close, and I need to close, I want to say something to all of us and to especially our students. If you want to plan and prepare and position yourself now for a healthy, holy, and happy marriage, find a godly man or woman and don't compromise. Find someone who shares your spiritual convictions and your biblical beliefs and put Jesus in the middle of you too and let him have his way. You'll figure out this whole leadership and submission thing and he'll learn to love you ladies as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And you'll discover the privilege and the pleasure that it is to surrender to a Christ who loves us so that he'd give all that he had for us. And a husband who would never use that by way of authority or lord it over his wife or be demanding or cruel, but always tender and loving the way Christ loves us. And there's hope for every one of our homes and families and for all of our marriages because God is still in the miracle-working business. So wherever you are in your marriage relationship now, maybe today would be the day you shake a little Jesus into the mix. Come together for forgiveness, for reconciliation. She says, I just can't respect him because he doesn't love me. And he says, I can't love her because she just disrespects me. Somebody ought to just decide to go first. And husbands, I would say, that's on you. You just begin to love her like Jesus loves the church, like you love yourself. And you will create a freedom in her to respect and honor you. And the more you love her, the more respect she will feel for you. If you're a wife and you say, he just doesn't love me, how can I respect somebody who just doesn't love me? Respect him out of obedience to the Lord. In submission to the Lord, respect your husband. And through your kind response to him, he will be freer to love you the way he needs to. Sometimes you got to prime the pump and be loving and be respectful. Now you've got that circle spinning in the right direction. And that's when the Holy Spirit of God goes to work to make two become one. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's Word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.